Welcome to episode 17 of Conversation Base. My name is Brian Rossetti, I'm the founder of V.02. In this episode, I spoke with Dan King of Boulder, Colorado. Dan recently set the world record in the mile for the M60 age group when he ran 449.08 at the South Carolina Track Fest this past August. The previous record was 451, set in 2012 by New Zealander Tony McManus. Dan and I get right into his training details. I wanted to dig as deep as I could to learn how a 61-year-old body can run this fast, and not to mention in hot conditions. Dan also never even considered himself a miler or trained for the distance until recently. We discuss more in the episode. If you take his 5K PR 1434 at age 20, the V.0 equivalent is 413. That means he essentially slowed down less than one second per year on average for over 40 years. Incredible. His 449, according to Jack Daniels' formula, equates to a 346 mile for a prime age runner. That's Alan Webb's current American record. We go deep on his workouts, discuss his cross-training and recovering methods, his plant-based diet, and the perceived impact it's had on his latest achievements. We also discuss preparing for his next goal, breaking the 3K world record, which is 929.57. That scores just slightly higher VDOT than his 449. Hope you enjoy this conversation. So Dan King, welcome to the show. Brian, thank you very much for having me on. How's it going in Boulder these days? Uh, today is beautiful. It's clear skies. We've had a ton of uh, really bad smoky days over probably the last, probably since the last two weeks of August. So it's it's been pretty pretty crappy in terms of training here. Uh, so but, this is the wildfire fires near you. Yeah, I've heard. I heard. I've heard we we get some smoke even as far from as far as uh, California, but we also have some fires uh, to the west of here and some fires to the north of here. And this kind of depends on the day whether you know the air quality looks green, which has been rare, or if it's in that yellow category, or if it's in that orange category. And has it been more than usual this season? Or no. Uh, it feels to me like every year feels worse than the year before for mm. what has been going on at least five years now. Um, this year, definitely. I mean, I, I don't remember, you know, it's been probably close to a month of pretty <clears throat> between intermittently bad air and really bad air. Wow. What do you, Dan, what do you use to sort of monitor that in terms of should I out today or do i need to get somewhere else to train or what do you usually use just the weather normal weather app or is there something there's uh there's an air quality app <clears throat> that i put on my uh my iphone that i use to just monitor it um and then you know unless i'm gonna train really hard i don't really spend too much time uh stressed over it you know the only days that uh the really bad air sometimes causes me to reconsider is if it's sort of in that orange category and I wanted to go do something intense. Um, yeah. Then I, then I know I'm going to be sort of like, you know, coughing a lot afterwards and sort of having a, <clears throat> a bit of a hack test. So those days I'm, I might reconsider, but there are not a lot of indoor options either. So yeah. I have a, I have an indoor, um, indoor trainer for my road bike. I'll sometimes get on that. And, and how much is the pandemic? How, well, how's your family and everyone's doing okay and holding up well in the pandemic? 
Yeah, you know, I have two uh, school-age kids, um, and then my wife and myself. Um, one, one of my daughters is in college, so she's a senior at Santa Clara University, captain of the cross-country team, and nice. you know, going, going, yeah, but going through kind of, I'll just call it the sadness of what is, you know, a senior year sort of unraveling from a, wow. from a running perspective, right? Um, hopefully, hopefully they're, I, I heard, I think I saw it just this morning that they're now considering sort of a, a winter into a, a winter cross. Um, that would be awesome if that happens. Yeah, I saw NCAAs. I think the cross country championships are now slated for March. Um, and I've I've seen some high school coaches that work on VDOT with their teams talk about uh, just masks for for practice and competition. Um, what what is your daughter? What are the restrictions? What does the season look like? Now it's just gotten pushed, or are they able to meet and train together at the moment, or not? Uh, I don't believe they're training together. I, you know, they, they, uh, she goes again to Santa Clara. They, they normally have a preseason cross country camp that got canceled uh, because of the COVID issues, um, mm-hmm. and then the West Coast Conference actually canceled the fall season for cross country. So that th- sort of put everything in limbo. I think most of the kids are just training on their own. In a in a weird way, um, it's been a little bit helpful for my daughter because she's also been relegated to a fair amount of cross training because she's had some of the the same kinds of injury um, problems I had when I was in college, namely um, some problems with her planner. So it's given her uh, an opportunity to get healthy and and sort of do some cycling. But she's got the exact same problem. It's like where do you go to ride your bike if the air quality was crappy, yeah. you know? So um, and then my other daughter is in. Uh, uh, she's she doesn't do a sport, but she does marching band, and that and also got canceled because of the pandemic. So, you know, it's been it's been challenging from one standpoint in terms of you know we're we're all being forced to uh, spend a lot more time together, which has been great. Uh, and for, me, for me, I've had the the bizarre uh, experience of uh, sort of a, I'll call it an epiphany about my running that was sort of forced upon me by the pandemic, which is learning that I'm actually a good miler, um, which would have never happened had it not been for, for this kind of a lockdown. Oh, interesting. So I, I definitely, we're going to talk a lot about that. I got some more feedback from Jack. I've just been emailing back and forth with him about your situation, some of the responses about your current training, what you've been doing. So I'm excited to discuss some of his feedback and, and what he said. So that's interesting that you have but you were never a middle distance runner, even when you were younger. You know, I I was the I was one of those kids, and I think there's a lot of us out there that um, a we're we're sort of driven by we like you know that it's funner to be near the front of a race and it's <laughs> near near the top of a podium than than middle of the pack. And as a high school runner, they're just less kids doing the longer races because they're just less fun to do. I think. Um, <laughs> so so you know the mile the mile sits in between the half mile and the two mile when I was in high school and you know kids come up from the half mile or they come down from the two mile and it's a very competitive event um the two mile just not a lot of kids wanted to do it and you know my my early experiences with racing um were not great in the shorter distance stuff you know I tried an 800 I wasn't or an 880 at the time I wasn't very fast at it so 
it just was sort of this natural progression up to longer, longer racing events. And once, once you start to have a little bit of success at those longer distances, you think you're just more cut out for that. And then that sort of dictates the way you train and, and what you compete in going forward. And, you know, that's very much my story. I, I was running this morning thinking about how yeah. many miles I've run this year in 2020. I've done nine, um, nine time trials or just, uh, <laughs> competitive timed races this year in the mile. And I think that's more than the rest of my life combined. <laughs> Unreal. So I was going to say, what about the pandemic has shifted you, you know, down to the mile, your focus down to the mile. It's just been, there's been more virtual mile races or just sort of you decided, okay, why don't I focus on something new, something a little bit easier, less mileage, or how did that work? So I, I was, uh, my wife and I are in the process of moving right now, and I've been cleaning up uh, my office. And I found, I found my race calendar for 2020. Actually, was it went actually went all the way back to 2019, 2019 and 2020. Mm-hmm. And for me, for me, 2020 was potent. My potential races, the ones I wanted to do, the Carlsbad 5K, the uh, the dip. Uh, sorry, the um, there's a, a mile race in California called Devil Mountain. Mm-hmm. That, that was my one mile race this year. Then I wanted to do this race called the Dipsy, which is uh, on the West Coast. Um, it's a famous kind of um, uh, run to the sea um, that my dad had won a couple of times. And so that just sort of had a special meaning for me. So I was going to try to get into that. And that's like a seven and a half mile cross country race. And then Boulder Boulder and then World Masters Track and Field Championships. <laughs> where I would have focused on the 5k and the 8k cross country race. So I had one mile on my, on my calendar for this entire year. And, <laughs> and, but it, fortunately it was first. And so I had already been thinking about, Oh, it's, you know, what am I going to try to do to, to, to run my best mile and the amount of time I had. And then in that intervening time, all of those races that I envisioned doing, you know, COVID happened yeah. and uh, the, the first of the, the mile in California got canceled and then the Boulder Boulder announced the cancellation and, then World Masters also canceled about the same time. So it was kind of like, well, I've been training for a mile. <clears throat> I went and did a time trial. I thought I could, I was hoping to run around 510. I did a 510. Um, about three weeks later, I did another time trial uh, with a pacer and around 503. And then I was like, wow, that was quite a bit faster than I was anticipating being at um, mm. in the spring. And then, you know, there were no other races. Anyway, I think then I think, uh, um, the, the Brooklyn mile showed up yeah. on the radar. And so then I was kind of like, I got really excited about that race because I just loved the format. Um, nice. love the fact that it had a, it had a prize money component, you yeah. know, so it was, it was going to attract a lot of talented runners because of prize money. It doesn't have to be a lot of prize money, but it's just going to get attention. Right. And then I love the, um, I call it, I love the fairness of the, uh, the structure, it, you know, it, it accounted for age and it accounted for altitude. Yeah. And so I was just like, oh man, and, you know, that plus knowing I was running pretty well at the mile, I just, that just was a race I got super excited about. So I was under the impression that for the last several years, you've just been cranking away training for the mile, but that's not true at all. No, I, I really, I really focused on it this year. I will, I, initially I was going to try to run a fast mile when I turned 60, which was last summer, okay. um, but I, I just couldn't string together 
anything. I, I had all kinds of uh, issues. I hurt my back. I think that was the main thing. And the, the back inju injury radiated into my leg and into my butt. Um, and I was having, I kept trying to do strides and I kept hurting my calves. And I was just like, this makes no sense. And, you know, and I kept taking my shoes. I love to run barefoot, but it's just not good for me at this age. So, so I kept, I started keeping my shoes on this year. And I think that helps. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah, it, it's really been a, a 2020 thing. It really, I there I did very little mile focused running at all in, in 2019. I did I did one uh, 1500 meter race. I did the um, the national senior games and I won that. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't in, I wasn't I wasn't at a high level fitness when I went out there. What were you running for 5K? Like, what have been some of your better 5K performances in the last few years? Well, I did a time trial this summer right after what, my 503 mile, and I ran 1815. And I did that on the exact same track in the exact same conditions, I think, four days later. That, um, at altitude or no? Yeah, that was also at altitude. So that would okay. be probably like a, maybe a 1735, 1740 sea level equivalent. Um, oh, okay. So it's good, but it's not as good as my mile. And that was one of the things that just sort of hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, like when I looked at how I age graded in that five. Yeah. Even the altitude adjusted time, it age graded around probably three points lower than my mile. And I was like, that's interesting. Yeah. So um, if, I, if I do your 449 at 5,000 feet, the Jack's equivalent, the V dot equivalent is 1705 for 5K. Um, of your mile, which is interesting. So significantly faster. Uh, wait, run that by me. Run that by me again, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Did I cut out? I just want to make sure that you heard me. No, no, no. I just, I don't think yeah. I, I caught the, uh, the connection that you made. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just taking your 449 mile. Okay. And so at sea level, the 5K equivalent would be 1635. Right, and I can't, I can't go down and run a, a sixteen thirty-five five k. Yeah, so if we go to to five thousand feet near Boulder, then it's seventeen oh five would be the the conversion. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, well, I ran eighteen fifteen. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, so it kind of comes back to I wanted to just mention with Jack. I kind of showed him some of the training that you've been doing and um, I'll just read off some of the things that he said here. So he's, he's talking about, well, Dan looks like, you know, he's high in fast twitch muscle fibers. He does really well with shorter, faster running. He suggests, you know, rep work is the best thing for you to do. Hill work obviously is, is the same as reps. It's just adding in um, resistance and, he says, you know, the, the time you had mentioned threshold training being a little bit more difficult for you to to hit in training, right? When you look at the VDOT paces. Yeah, when I look at my VDOT number and then I look at all the paces across all of the speeds of running, yeah. the threshold is it's hard for me to hit those paces um, based on my current VDOT. Yeah. I mean, he said for the most part, go by feel. And uh, same thing on easy runs. I think on easy runs, if you do put in the 449 at 5,000 and then convert to 5,000 feet, the easy runs should really like 752 is the slow end of your easy pace range then, which is closer to what 
you do, but Jack always says, run as slow as you need to on those days. But the the key is, is I think for him, is avoiding like running with bad mechanics when you go really slowly. Yeah. On runs. It's like if if he'd rather see you scrap the run, you know, if you're struggling to to hit your easy pace range because you're not feeling well, because then you're running with bad mechanics probably. So I think I think a lot of people get into trouble there versus on their speed work because they do a lot of um, easy running with bad mechanics, you know, because they're fatigued or they're sore or they're tight and they just kind of slog through and that's how you get the repetitive uh, stress injuries. So, um, but yeah, I thought that was interesting. He said, you know, continue to focus on the reps and his feedback is funny considering you're saying like, I never even considered myself a miler. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so, it's, it's really interesting to me. Um, you know, I kind of feel like maybe my speed relative to my endurance, that, that gap hasn't changed as much as it changes for most people as they've gotten older. I feel like my speed has dropped off less than just sort of the natural endurance changes that happen as you age. Um, so, you know, I'm, my, my range is kind of, it's funny. I went, I was at the track, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, you know, and I, I wanted, I, I wanted just to go run a fast hundred and see like how fast would I, can I even just run a hundred? And so I did a couple and I just, you know, I didn't, I don't do them from a standing start. I kind of jog into them, but I mean, my, my hundreds are just like, like say 16 and a half, um, 16.3, I think. And then, you know, I haven't seen, you know, I think I could run a 200 and maybe 32 mm. and I, and, you know, but I, I do my 800 or I do my 300s and just 54s. And I feel, you know, that's, that's a hard pace for me, but it, it's, yeah. not, I can, I can sustain it for, you know, sets. And then I, I can race the mile in 72 second 400s. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting because there's just not a big gap between, between those times. They're just, it's sort of my, my sprinting pace and my, uh, my mile pace are, um, are not that, they're a little different, but they're not that different. I mean, I would think if you looked at a somebody who's much younger and, you know, let's just say a world-class miler, they're going to have a gap between those. Yeah, yeah. So on the rep the rep work, you're really running right at close to your, your current mile race pace for, for most of the, the reps that you do. Right. Yeah, and, and, and that's what he generally recommends. I was curious because he's also found – I think Jack used to coach a guy who ran the mile and he did most of his rep work. This was a sub four guy in the mile and he did a lot of um, rep work on purpose at like 61, 62 quarter pace. And he never ran race pace or faster in practice, never. Mm-hmm. And then um, he, the guy ran sub four. So Jack was, interestingly enough, because ja- everyone assumes Jack, you know, the scientist and He's very rigid about, you know, everything's formulaic, but that's really not who he is. He's very open uh, and curious and um, likes to try different things. So he's like, I started trying it with some athletes and he's like, it works. And I think the lesson to many runners is that some, in many cases, people just overtrain, right? And then they underperform and 
and races. So that's what, that was always my takeaway. So I was curious if, if you find that in your training or do you feel like you've struck the right balance where you go really hard in training, but you're doing a lot of cross training. You're taking days off. You said you're only running every other day, right? At most. Right. I run, I run every other day and on the running cycle, um, every other run is high intensity and every other run is an easy run. Yeah. But I'm a, but I don't, when I say an easy run, it, 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 it's also a kind of a purposeful, easy day. I, I tend to also still do, I am, I'd like to do plyometric drills. I like to do some form drills. Yeah. I also like to do uh, either very short hill sprints um, and, or sometimes just all out um, sprints just on say across the soccer field and only eight, 10 second kinds of things. So I don't, I don't, none of that is very tiring, um, but it, it feels to me like it's activating the right things um, in terms of my form, in terms of my fast twitch. Um, so it feels very complementary to what I'm trying to do as a miler without really beating me up at all. <clears throat> so those, and then on my cross training days, I mean, I just, I do whatever is fun. I, this time of year, I much prefer, mostly prefer to be on my bike, but I have a pool in my backyard and I do deep water running. Um, and then I do a fair amount of elliptical training at different points of the year as well. And that's usually easy training. That's all yeah. would be in that same kind of intensity level as, you know, an eight minute mile pace. Um, and it, and it just, it just complements my overall endurance. I don't feel like it. Um, I feel like it really, um, it just keeps me very um, cardiovascularly fit. Yeah. It's interesting. I I remember coaching a master's miler many years ago. It was, um, I think he was in the M55 age group and he was on the top, you know, 10 or maybe close to top five in the country at one point. And he thought I was nuts at first when we started working together because I just cut out a lot of his running. And it just seemed to me that a lot of the master's runners, as they age up, they feel like they have to keep training harder to prevent you know, losing time, too much time year to year. And the the philosophy is like, well, I got to train even harder so I don't you know, slow down as much. And then they recover less week to week. They get hurt. They get less quality. I, I feel like for you, like you talked about the general pattern is right as you age, it's much harder. You lose speed and you, you tend to get stronger maybe for endurance, endurance races. Obviously, marathoners peak much later than milers typically do. Um, but you're doing like you're saying like sprints, like really top end high intensity sprinting which has allowed you to to maintain really good speed but obviously it's it can be high risk too right so yeah, it just definitely. seems like you found an amazing balance of allowing you to do that really high risk training and stay healthy right but I, it sounds like it's taken a while to sort of master how you stay healthy though right it, it seems like it's it's not an easy solution. There's a lot, a lot of different things you're doing. Well, the, yeah, the main, the main things for me um, in terms of running health have been, you know, I've just always, I've always battled plantar fasciitis. Um, I mean, just really battled it. And uh, I had that 10 X procedure at the end of um, yeah. 2017 and, 
and this is the this is the first year where I've been able to do the amount of intensity I've done without setbacks from that since as a master's. There's never been another year that I've had this kind of I'll just call it sustained good running with high intensity running. Mm. Um, so that that's been a huge thing, and I, I do attribute some of that um, to that 10x procedure. I think that really helped with my body's ability to to sort of just stay healthy in that. And I'm really careful about it. if I feel any subtle changes, I'll I'll back off. I I have no no compunction about that. The yeah. other two areas for me have been calves and, and hamstrings this year, and you know I didn't I don't have a history of those problems. But this has sort of been a function of trying to be a faster runner and trying to run the mile. Um, workouts like 1k repetitions with you know at eye pace are yeah. um, those are they're just harder on a on a 60 year old chassis than they are on a <laughs> especially especially because I can you know my 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 1k mile pace is around 520 per mile yeah and and that um, that's what I did this morning in fact um, and that running feels good but I've twice in the last six months or nine months i've hurt my hamstring at the end of one of those sets and, you know so and then the other one has been the calf problem that i already mentioned and so the things the other things that i've done that have really helped me this year is i've added more recently a lot of eccentric hamstring stretching mm. and strengthening and also calf eccentric calf stretching and strengthening i think that's also been very good for my planner so there, I have sort of a protocol that I do at least three times a week now to address both of those those parts of my uh, my body, and and I feel like that is helping as much as anything of of the changes I've made. Do you do a lot of um, foam rolling, or I've been using messing around with the Theragun recently? Anything like that? Any other tool? Do you go to PT um, like occasionally, whether you're you're injured or not? Anything else that you're doing? I, I have a foam roller, I have a stick roller, I have a Theraga, and I have all that <laughs> stuff, right? Um, and I, I use them intermittently, and I don't know if they make much of a difference. <laughs> I think the next thing I might invest is those uh, Normatec uh, compression sleeves. I think okay. those would be super super useful on, on my legs. I'm, I'm kind of, um, I've got a, a doctor of chiropractic medicine that's helping me out. He also paced me in my, uh, my, my mile, my world record mile, a guy named John Minan. And he has one of those in his office. Um, so I've I've gone and seen his his massage in the past, but I don't I don't do it regularly. But I loved those uh, compression sleeves. Those things were awesome. Yeah, you felt you felt like they've helped. Yeah, well, I just, they feel great. They feel like they're doing something. They feel like they're just really moving all yeah. of that fluid and stuff. You know, working it very methodically, kind of from your your heels all the way up to the up to your glutes yes kind of squeezing you out yeah yeah so well sticking on recovery um this is something that we always talk about with our athletes and you could say it all the time and i suffer from it too but it sounds like at the end of the day you have all these recovery tools but you're getting pretty consistent it seems like quality sleep from what you mentioned right and do you feel like at the end of the day, if you don't have that, then you're not going to recover. Is, has that been a big part of your success, you think, is just how much sleep you're getting, how consistent it is, and, and the quality of it? I, I, yeah, I think, I think it's 
I think it's easy to overlook the, um, the importance of the recovery piece. I think most athletes do, especially young athletes. I think you just kind of get your head wrapped around the, the important thing is just the hard work you put in. Yeah. And the recovery sort of takes care of itself. I think, um, but you know, it's, it's also a tricky thing because, you know, if you don't sleep well, why don't you sleep well? Yeah. Well, is, do you, is it, is it because you, you're taking caffeine? I mean, you know, I was an entrepreneur for 20 years and I, I felt like my job was nothing but stress and it's, <laughs> it's hard, you know, it's, even though, you know, you should sleep more or you should sleep better telling yourself that doesn't really have a lot of uh, bearing on the outcome. Yeah. Um, you know, you can try to make yourself go to bed earlier, but if you've just got stuff that your brain is still processing when you get in bed, you know, it's just hard to, it's hard to clear that as a retired, a retired person. I don't have nearly those kinds of, no nightmares or anxiety yeah. from the old days. You know, it's, it's kind of funny because I think that the 60 year age group as a master's athlete, you start to actually compete a lot with people that have way more flexible uh, work schedules. Not everybody, but a lot of people have more flexibility in their work schedules and they can start training more seriously and they can start doing the little things that they didn't used to have time for. And when I say the little things, I mean, working on uh, form drills, stretching, foam mm -hmm. rolling, Theragun, um, getting better sleep, all of those, all those complementary strength work, all those complementary things to your athletic performance all of a sudden they sort of become available and they didn't used to be available. So if you're committed athletically, if you really, you know, you, you really want to have success in, in the sport, then you, you, I mean, this is just my observation, but I'm seeing other people in my similar situation that all of a sudden are just performing at a really high level again. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. One of the, like, one of the things we're seeing with the pandemic, we're doing a lot of virtual training. I, I coach, a big club in New York city. And we usually meet Tuesdays and Wednesday nights, different groups for practice in central park, which is a ton of fun. And it's just a great environment. There's so many clubs and practices going around, um, going on at the same time. And obviously none of that's happening right now or well, it's slowly coming back. But anyway, my point is that it seems like athletes, many are still thriving because of the flexibility with their jobs and training and maybe the kids are still at home or they can get out to run at better times. And, um, just, I think that's a good lesson for people is just the f flexibility in general with training or being able to adapt or move things or have extra time to get sleep or take, take the time to, to uh, practice foam rolling or, you know, eating it. I think the another lesson is like with the all this recovery stuff takes hard work, right? It's not just resting uh, when you're not training. Um, it's really working at diet, working at sleep, and so it sounds like sleep is a little bit easier. Maybe retirement's just the key here. Was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that like one sec came into play. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, retirement affords me a couple of things. One, it affords me the ability to add that extra things to my, I'll call it regimen that um, complement my competitiveness as a master's athlete that didn't have time when I was working. So there, there's, that's for sure a thing. Yeah. And then the other thing it lets me do is I, I, I don't, we didn't talk about this, but I, I train because I run every other day. I train on an eight week cycle instead of a seven week cycle. 
And I mean, a, a seven week cycle makes sense for most people because you have to have structure and a routine. If you're part of a club or a running community, you know, people have to run on certain days. They have certain days they can do their hard runs. They have certain days they can do their long runs. They have certain days that they do their easy training. Um, but I tend to train on my own. And because I run every other day, I just sort of ignore the calendar week in the way I train. I just, you know, I train based on mm. sort of what makes most sense for me physiologically. Um, so, and, and what I tend to do is I work backwards. If I have a race that I care about, I just, I just work backwards, you know, the four weeks leading up to it. Um, and I just sort of build how I envision my training going. Um, but it's on an eight day, eight day cycle. Even when I kind of like, if I put a workout plan in, in a spreadsheet, it's based on an eight day, eight day weeks, essentially. When did that come into play? Is that, has it evolved that you've kind of settled into that or, or have you worked with a coach on developing it or is it just sort of, like I said, something that you kind of gravitated to as you aged up? Um, I gravitated to it because, um, because I found that the every other day running has been good for me. And, you know, again, I, I'm a big proponent of cross training, but if I could run more, I would run more. So I don't, I don't mean, to yeah. ever come across sounding like I think um, like competitive yeah, yeah. athletes that put a lot of miles in are doing something wrong. I don't think that at all. I, if I could run more, I would run more. I would do more like what other people do. But but I've just had such a history of planner problems and my planner problems are triggered by volume and they're triggered by intensity. And so, you know, and I've, I have learned from my own training that the easy run isn't any better for my running than the easy cycling or the easy elliptical training. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make me, at least I don't think so, you know, and I'm just going with, you know, a couple decades of experience now. So, um, so, so I've evolved, a, a, I'll just call it a very unique um, training model that's centric to me and the fact that I'm, I'm very comfortable just doing my own thing in terms of how I work out. The other thing that I find interesting about myself is I, I, I have had some coaching help in the past, but I don't, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty much a, a self-coached athlete because I don't okay. really feel like I don't really fit into a lot of other people's um, concepts for how they like to train athletes. I like the independence of, um, you know, just taking in what I can learn from smart people that write great books on running, like Jack Daniels, for example, um, and incorporating <laughs> those good ideas and then using myself as sort of an experiment of want and seeing what are these things that I'm doing? How are they, how are they impacting how I feel? How are they impacting how I'm performing? You know, is, is this a, the right model for me in terms of how I'm training? I've gone through some really interesting shifts over my master's career. For a while, I was all in with a, a concept um, based on a guy named Phil Maffetone, who was all about just basically everything was call it top end of zone two training, right? And just yeah. the competition alone was going to be all the high intensity stuff you needed. And for, for a couple of years, that's how I trained. I just did volume at low mm. intensity. Um, but then that, that sort of uh, gave way to... Um, I think the next two authors that kind of influenced me after that was Matt Fitzgerald, his 80-20 book, and Jack Daniels' book, quite frankly. And so, you know, I read mm -hmm. Jack's book cover to cover, and 
what I really loved about it was how prescriptive it was about the different paces based on your level of fitness. I loved that it was about training to the level you're at, not the level you want to be at. Um, I love <laughs> how he built sort of a year around sort of two two blocks of training that were broken into six weeks, you know, six by, uh, it was basically four periods of six weeks each. And, you know, you're sort of building towards a peak. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, reading through Jack stuff, thinking about it, thinking about how to apply it to my running, you know, and I'm a lot of those things, you know, still stick with me. So, um, That's like great. I'll, every, the beginning of every season, I'll go see where my V dot is. I'll go see what that should tell. I, I like to look at what I should be able to race across the spectrum of races. And I also like to see, <laughs> you know, where I should be training at. And the thing I can say is that as a, as a person who lives at altitude, what I always have to do is realize that my, easy pace and my threshold pace are going to be slower than say my repetition pace or my interval pace. So I have to make those kinds of adjustments in my own head, but, but it's, it's been a, it's been a really good model for me. What um, you had mentioned mileage, some of the other masters runners you refer to that you're competing with at a high level. So like in the fifties, sixties world-class, I mean, what type of mileage, are you seeing just from what you know? Uh, you're, so you, you're saying these guys are still running pretty high volume. The guys at the top here of their class. There's a there's a, a guy in my age group named Joe Saran. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's from Washington State. He's fantastic. Mm -hmm. He pretty much wins all the national championships in cross country that he enters. Um, I'm usually behind him, but I'm usually not going into many of those races coming off a very healthy year. Like I would love to see how I would perform right now um, because I've been so healthy. Um, there's a guy I just read this morning, a runner's world story about a guy from Ireland named Tommy Hughes. And I guess he was a, an Olympian in the 92 Barcelona Olympics. And he's still doing, he just turned 60 and he still, he logs 120 miles a week when he wow. in his mar marathon training, he's 60. I mean, I could no sooner run a hundred. Wow. I couldn't. I couldn't run 120 miles a week in my in my prime when I was a collegiate runner, much less now. So that's yeah. That's okay. not even that's not even part of my my conversation. But he also ran a a 9:31 3K just I think last week, and he got second in the race to another Irish 60 year old who maybe doesn't run quite that volume, but also runs a lot of volume. That guy broke the world record for the 3K. He ran nine. 29.4 um and my 3k adjusted time based on, on jack formula say i should be able to run a 933 3k so i think i would be you know that would be a fun race because i think i would be right there with guys like that even on my you know 25 miles a week of running right once probably once you get above the 3k then it's much harder for you to run the equivalent with that much um with that much volume, at least. Um, yeah, I don't think I can compete with guys like that at, at longer races, like 10K and up. Yeah. I don't. I don't think there would be there would be with with the way I train. I just even as much as a value as I get out of cross training, I don't. I don't think it would stack up to somebody yeah. who could still run 100 100 mile weeks. Yeah, and I think that's. I think that brings up a good point. I mean, many will look at those those are the equivalent table as, as predictive or predictions. And it's really not, it's just the physiological equivalent. And I like it because it kind of can pinpoint or highlight maybe 
okay, you want to run a better 5K, then sure, we need to adjust your training a little bit, right? Um, right now it's geared really nicely for the mile. Um, but to right. sort of get closer, we need to maybe do more threshold. We need to maybe add in more mileage and or longer long runs or whatever it may be, you know? So um, yeah. that's what I love about those tables. And many are kind of like, oh, there's no way this table's wrong. There's no way I can run that for 5K, <laughs> you know, or for right. a marathon. I wish I could run my the equivalent of, of my 1500 PR in the marathon, you know? No, I, w- I would never come close to that. Uh, I just, I wasn't that type of runner, you know? Right. So I have a question for you, Brian. Um, yeah. So I am going to run a 3K in, in October, assuming I don't have any setbacks, on October 17th, actually. And so when I look at the 3K compared to the mile, I look at the mile as being, uh, it's, you know, it's an endurance event with a with a big speed component and a big kind of anaerobic uh, energy demand. The 3K starts to become a little bit closer to more of a pure endurance race, but it's still got plenty of um, anaerobic energy requirements and and plenty of speed sp- speed requirements. So I'm I'm trying to in my own head just wrap wrap my thoughts around. Okay, well, how do I shift my training to be faster at 3K a month from now? And and the um, the logical conclusion I came up with is like that's a almost a pure vo2 max kind of a race because yeah. it goes on for nine and a half minutes um, so vo2 max training is probably the thing that would make the most sense and so like either I'm just adding in you know more 1k um, kinds of intervals into my training over the next month I'm gonna add in some critical velocity yeah type of stuff out on the roads because it's just a little bit beats me up a little bit less than the 1Ks. I don't think it's quite as uh, risky for me from a, you know, injury standpoint. But, and then, and then my track workouts, my, like my 300, my sets of, I'll do three by 300 or three sets of three by 300 um, on the track. And like, if I were training for the mile, I would try to, you know, target around 54 seconds here. I think I would target 57 seconds, but I would shrink the rest periods a little bit. Does that make sense or would you do, would you do? Yeah, no, I think that all makes sense. And the only thing that I would really add off the top of my head is, is you, the intervals don't just have to be K's. I think that has to be your focus. Um, You can do obviously 1200s would make them even harder. You'll take a little bit extra rest, but if those K's are really a challenge for you, then, then do more 600s at interval pace. Um, you know, make the duration a little bit less, do more, a little shorter mm-hmm. recovery. And and maybe that helps you spend more time at your max without beating you up. Um, you could do them in 400s. You know, they're only, for you, about 80 seconds. You, you don't even get up to your max on the first one. But with very short rest, then over time, um, you know, you'll accumulate spending time there. Uh, running at your max so i would i would mix it up don't just do k's um okay you know 800 what's very short rest for a 400 well if you were doing 400 intervals for you that's 80 seconds so you would just take um one minute you could take 45 seconds rest between okay two if you're doing 600 that's about two minutes a 600 for you so just take one minute and um those don't have to be jogging i mean they could be a little bit of walk jog as long as you're moving 
I think some people like to press those recoveries as if, you know, they're making the workout harder or they're cheating if they're not. And then what happens is um, you might be messing with how much time you're actually spending at max or maybe you're going anaerobic at that point. Um, so, yeah, I would I would play around with the intervals. Don't just mm-hmm. do plays. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so that's interesting. The I wanted to um, – well, real quickly, because I, I, I had a follow-up on, you seem to be sort of an exception compared to these high-mileage guys, or, or would you say they're more an exception? And what you typically find are guys running 20, 30 miles a week and doing a lot of cross-training. I would, think, I would have thought that that's probably more common uh, at that point. The, with the more common that people are doing more cross-training? Yeah, more cross training, less running, even competing at that high level at your age. I don't think so. I think it's. I think most of the people that um, are competing at a high level at my age are are doing more running. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't think. I think I've embraced cross training just purely out of need. Yeah. Um. You know, I just. I make the best out of a bad situation, right? It's like, okay, well, I can't run as much as I used to, so I, you know. I kind of redefine myself as an endurance athlete. I started doing triathlon and things like that. Yeah. Just to give me so also some competitive focus around adding new kinds of things to my training. Um, but my first love is running. And if I could run more, I would run more. Um, and I think most people that I compete with, their first love is running. And they, you know, if their body will support it, they're just that's going to be their go-to and, and and rightfully so. Yeah. I remember talking with Lynn Jennings and she said she used to hate knowing what some of her top competitors were doing that that would sort of mess with her. (laughs) And, you know, and I remember Jack, when Joan Benoit Samuelson was his lab assistant up in Exeter, New Hampshire, when he worked for Nike in the exercise science lab, he said like she would have a certain loop and she knew if she was hitting certain times on that loop that she was ready to go. It was sort of like her, own internal individual, you know, metric where she gauged. And, um, but it's such a good lesson. I mean, the sport is so individual. Um, and we must obviously train accordingly. I remember training with a guy post collegiately at down at zap fitness, 1500 meter guy. He just couldn't stay healthy at one point. So this is a guy just graduated from Brown and he was literally running 30 miles a week training for the Olympic trials and wow. he was doing tons of cross training. He ran like 340. Um, you know, he didn't make the team or anything, but that's pretty darn fast off of 30 some miles a week. And I think most athletes, most coaches would never even consider that, you know, for a guy that young um, trying to compete at that level. And I always took that as such an amazing lesson is just that everyone's different. And you really just need to kind of figure out what what's the best formula, what's the best you know balance for you. And um, it just sounds like you've you've nailed it. Uh, things have come together, right? The pandemic, the retiring, and you've sort of found these different tools. I want to talk a little bit about uh, nutrition too, because that's such an important part, and it's so overlooked. Maybe not so much in the masters. Um, realm, but at least for younger athletes, I think they think they can get away with 
um, nutrition and what they eat, you know, that it's not as big a, a, of part of training. So I'd love just to hear how things have evolved for you in terms of nutrition and how you feel that's impacted, you know, training, staying healthy. Yeah. So, um, I went through, a I went through a kind of, I had a little bit of, a, a maybe epiphany is not the right word, but, um, you know, I have a, a younger sister who's a very talented and very competitive uh, distance runner, master's distance runner. She has five American records. <clears throat> and she's she's just a compassionate human being about animals. And so mm-hmm. she, you know, we would always go out and it always would come up in conversations, just the importance of like food choices around the ethical side of eating. Um, and, you know, for a long time, that didn't really move me. But because I was open-minded to it, I ended up um, I ended up reading a book. I think my wife gave me a book called the China study and, mm. you know, it basically, it basically made a, and it was more on correlation than cause and effect, but it made a very strong correlation between sort of what's wrong with the West, the standard Western diet and, and how potentially contributing to just disease, you know, yeah. heart disease, cancer, autoimmune disease. Um, it is. And, and that just got me to really rethink, you know, it was sort of a combination of things, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I was just turning 50. I was just about to have my first colonoscopy. I'm kind of going, well, this is about the age when people start having like lots yeah. of bad things happen to them. Um, and I just made the decision after reading that book that I was going to, you know, go to a vegan diet. <clears throat> so basically plant-based. And when I use the word plant-based instead of vegan, because it also, it connotates eating healthy foods, like a yeah. whole food plant-based diet is, is about healthy food. I, I get asked a lot about where I get protein and I just get protein from food. I think people underappreciate how much protein actually is in plant foods. Like if you only eat plant foods, you'll, you'll get all the protein that you need as an athlete. I, I think I saw, I took a, a nutritional class through uh, Cornell University online and uh, one of the one of the charts that really left an impression on me was <clears throat> they compared 500 calories um, of food. One bowl of food was like meat, beef, pork, and dairy, and the other was like I'll call it corn, beans, tomatoes, potatoes, and say peas. Yeah. And they basically had the exact same amount of protein in 500 calories of both of those bowls of food. Wow. The difference was in all the micronutrients, you know, the, the plant-based bowl just had all these other things that were, you know, this, you know, the, the, the um, things that are just critical to good health. And so, you know, <clears throat> I, I don't worry about, I haven't had to worry about uh, the protein aspect. I, when I train really hard, I'll, I'll supplement once in a while, like after I train really hard, I'll, I'll, you know, it's, I think it's more just to, to make me mentally, um, feel checked in with my, my training, but I'll, I'll sometimes do like a fruit and protein powder smoothie um, yeah. after a really hard training day. But I, other than that, I just eat whole foods and, you know, they're, they come out of the, the grains, the, you know, nuts, fruits, vegetables, legumes, those, those categories of foods. And so the, that I get the protein question, I guess is pretty common, right? The reaction at least is, you know, do you, and you answered it pretty much like you don't feel like you have to work hard. Like it's possible, obviously, through a plant-based diet to get an, enough protein to support 
the amount of training you're doing as an athlete, but you don't feel like you need to work extra hard for it because you're not eating meat because it's available. I suspect, yeah, I suspect in the 20, let's say I eat 22, 2300 calories a day. I suspect I get just as much protein in my diet as somebody who eats meat, even though I don't, I don't supplement protein just purely based on the foods that are on, you know, what I eat, you know, and you're not counting, you're not like vigilant about shoot, how much did I get? Or I really need to make up, you know, with this next meal or anything like that. You're just casually eating without thinking about it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I went and looked at like a bunch the other, I did this actually about uh, two weeks ago because somebody asked me this question specifically because (laughs) of something that came out in that runner's world article. But the, um, if, if, if you only ate broccoli, like if that was the only food you ate all day long, right? Mm-hmm. You'd get, you'd probably get, I think three or 400 grams of protein. If you had 24, 2,500 calories of broccoli in your diet, it would be so much broccoli. You could probably never eat that much, but <laughs> I mean, it would, it would overwhelm you in terms of a, of a food choice. But I'm just making the point that if yeah. every food on your plate, if eaten in isolation gave you the, the protein requirements that an athlete would need per day, then clearly just combining elements of all of those different things in your, in your diet are going to do the same thing. It was true. It was true when looking at oats, it was true when looking at nuts, it was true when looking at broccoli, it was true at all the things I looked at. So, so yeah, I, I spend, I spend very little time worrying about sort of the the protein component um, of my diet. That's great to hear. And then any, like if someone is curious or they've been wanting to sort of get over the hump, but I don't know if it's just addiction to meat. I know when I cut out sugar, right, for several days or caffeine, then there's that withdrawal period. Is is there anything similar making that transition? Do you remember? Like was it was it challenging or or once those things came together, you read the book? you were started to become more concerned about your health. There was the ethical, the ethics component. Was it pretty seamless for you to s- transition and stay on the vegan diet? I always hear like, Oh, I just, I just felt weak or I felt hungry. All yeah. the time. Is that a transition or is that just someone's in it's, someone's head? I, I think it's a combination of both of those things. I think when you, you certain different foods satiate you in different ways mm-hmm. and, and, and certain foods are, are, I'll just call it heavier in terms of like, you know, how they sort of fill in your system after you ingest them, like really high fat foods, for example. Right. Um, and so, so I think, I think it's a combination of both of those things. I, I do remember probably having, you know, some feelings of, um, you know, maybe being less satiated or maybe feeling a little bit hungry after eating. Um, but here, you know, <laughs> Here's a good example. Like if I go to a wedding, let's say a, a relative gets married and they invite me to their wedding and normally they're serving people a meal and that meal has meat in it, but then they want to make sure they have a vegetarian option or a vegan option. And so they c- contract with the, the facility to put together a, a vegan plate of food for those same people. The The plate of food that I get, like I'll call it, I'll say 90% of the time is probably... 1500 calories or sorry let's let's say that the the meat plate is a thousand calories the vegan plate is probably 600 calories or 550 calories and it's just not a satiating meal because it's just not enough food because you right. 
if you're not eating a lot of saturated fat, if you're not eating some of the other things that are coming on that other plate, that, that 500 calorie bowl that I mentioned compared to the meat bowl is a much bigger bowl of food. It's the same number of calories, but there's just more stuff in it, right? There's a lot more volume of food. And so I think maybe what, what, what probably happens to a lot of people is that the same plate size of plant-based foods is just not enough calories for them. So they should be hungry when they're done with it. Mm, that's a good point. Um, so I got to ask impossible burger or beyond burger. You can only choose one, which, which is better. I like beyond better. Oh yeah. Which is, probably, <laughs> which is probably tastes more like a traditional, is that right? Like more traditional veggie type burger experience. Uh, no, I, impossible? I think that one. Now, I think the Beyond Burger, I can't distinguish it from a meat burger in terms of the texture of it or the way it tastes. And, you know, one thing I really missed about changing to a vegan diet was the hamburger and, and the innovation yeah. in that space in the last like year and a half has been amazing. Um, it's not the healthiest thing to eat, I don't believe, but I don't care. It just tastes fantastic. And so I'll, I, I love having that in my diet. Another product that I eat a lot of because it just it it hits it checks the comfort food boxes uh, a lot of the gardein stuff yeah you can you can i can have all the things i used to love when i was a meat eater with the gardein products and so i have a, a freezer full of that stuff do you feel like this is like we're in, in an era where innovation and in food is going to finally at least start right it's maybe one factor and towards a move like moving the u.s away from um just incredible amounts of meat consumption yeah, uh, I, subsidies and the access to just cheap you know meat are an issue will always be an issue unless that's dealt with but i feel like i i hear so often more so on impossible burger honestly where we get true meat eaters to be like holy cow like I really loved the impossible burger, you know, for what it was not as like a replacement. Like I actually really liked it. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of people are, you know, the, when people finally embrace it, you know, unless I, meat is a funny thing, right? There's so many, like, there's such a strong uh, cultural um, yeah. aspects to eating meat that are just so powerful and so important to people. Uh, and I'm, you know, a lot of people are just going to be really loath to change just purely because of those reasons. But, but people that have, are in, I'll just call it the more open-minded space when, when they taste those things, they're like, you know, it's not that different. And and some people are finding that they probably even prefer it. Um, but I mean, if, if for me, if I take that, the logicals like elevate one step higher, I mean, I just don't think the way we eat as a, a world and as a society is even sustainable. So something's got to give. I mean, right. the plant, the can't, the planet can't take the right. way we eat. The amount of, you know, the the resource depletion that's happening, the amount of greenhouse gas that animal agriculture contributes. I mean, it's just not sustainable. There's too many people eating too much meat. Yeah, sadly, it's just uh, most people. Just I don't think they realize that. You know, but you're right. It isn't sustainable and. Eventually, it's going to change, hopefully, sooner than, than later. So then my final question on nutrition is really this transition for you. Obviously, I think you said it's been 11 years now. Um, is Are you kind of showing that this transition has, hasn't impacted you 
in terms of what you've done athletically, or do you feel like it's been a big part of allowing you to do this? If you follow. Uh, yeah, um, if you, I don't have, you know, again, this, it ends up going into that anecdotal yeah. kind of conversation and, and thing, but I feel like at the very worst, it's been neutral and most likely it's, it's helped me continue to perform at a high level. Okay. Um, my, my food choices. And again, I'm only one athlete eating this way, but I know, I know, um, I know that another really great miler, um, in my age group, a guy named Anselm Laborn, um, I was told that, that he is mostly plant-based vegetarian and that guy, Joe Sharan is so hard to beat in cross country. I know he's vegan. So in just my M60 age group, I mean, there's just three data points, but all those guys, <laughs> myself included, are are really hard athletes to beat. And and we all have um, a pretty common, uh, have made a pretty common choice um, in terms of our diet. So that's cool. Um, so I did, obviously, we're, we're V.O. too. So I was playing around on the calculator, as always. Um so you had mentioned 5K in college during, you know, your prime years, 1434. If you take the VDOT equivalent for a mile, that's a 72 VDOT. So I had 413 mile equivalent from that 5K PR. So in, in about 41 years, you've slowed about 36 seconds, right? So less than a second per year. For 41 years with your world record 449, um, which is just, it's crazy. Um, 61.9 VDOT, level 10. I think Jack confirmed based on his numbers that the equivalent of your 449 in someone's prime is about a 346 mile. That is Alan Webb's American record. Um, so just to kind of help put context or equate the level of performance at your age, it's, it's phenomenal, but to lose less than a second per year over 41 years is really unbelievable. And you know, you have no idea how happy that makes me um, <laughs> because my biggest fear as a master's runner is feeling like I can't run fast anymore. Mm. I love to run fast still. I mean, it's what puts the smile on my face when I train. It's what puts the smile on my face when I'm, I even think about the sport. And even though I admire people that go out and just slog slow miles, I love running fast. Yeah, and, you know, it, it connects to my happiness. So to hear all that, it's like, <laughs> that, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it coming. What else you got? <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, you ran 457. This was that hot day. You had mentioned uh, 89 degrees. I think it was that was in the Runner's World article that you had made that comment um do you jack has the heat the temperature formula which is really just an average um it varies obviously again based on individuals but i was curious if you felt like that 457 considering the conditions was close to or as good as that 449 based on how you felt the you know when when i went to nashville and ran that 457 the things that were sort of weighing heavily on my confidence about being able to to get the the American or the world record on that day were number one, um, 
I had missed a lot of training leading up to that uh, mm. because of my hamstring. I hurt my hamstring three and a half weeks before the race. And I had to, I took, I think, 10 days completely off. And then I had a 10 days of sort of transitioning back to running. And then I had one hard workout and then I went and raced. And even though I cross trained like a world champion, it's still a little bit, it leaves, it, it, it still doesn't allow you to go into an event like that being a hundred percent confidence, a hundred percent confident you're where you need to be. Yeah. So that was, that was probably the, the number one factor for me. Um, there was no pacing help in that race. I led kind of, I'll call it the second pack of runners around the track for, for three laps. Um, and then, and then the heat. So I don't think that the heat was one factor, but it was also the fact that it's in direct sunlight. I don't know what the, why that's such a difference for me, but when the sun's actually just beating on you when you're running yeah, and the track, the track is sort of radiating the heat from the sun beating on it. And on that day, it was also a little bit breezy. All of those things. I think it was the combination of all those things, you know, kind of yeah. put a little seed of doubt into my brain that I wasn't going to be able to run a world record or an American record time that day. Mm. But my 457 gave me huge confidence um, that when I realized I could come back to South Carolina two weeks later, it gave me huge confidence that it was in my wheelhouse that even even on a warm day, I felt like, you know, that wasn't going to yeah going to be a, a determinant and in that, fact south carolina yeah. was a very warm day as well but it was much later in the evening so it was just a, a warm um, air temperature but there was no, oh, no so, direct sun going so 449 was the conditions were hot too uh that was like probably 85 degrees wow. maybe 84 degrees something like that wow it's interesting because the 457 and 89 degrees would you know the effort as much faster than than 449 at least but whenever you talk it's like when we coach runners all summer that are trained for the marathon and they think they're out of shape right they're out running in 90 degrees or 85 degrees it's humid they can't hit their paces they feel terrible it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how often you tell them like no it's the heat you know that has an impact like the effort is there you got to adjust your paces you're fit don't worry once it gets cooler you'll feel better but the the 457 didn't feel good, right? It's hard to have that confidence, even if the the conversion is is faster. It's like I felt terrible, and I ran a lot slower than I wanted to, you know. Right. It's exactly. Hard to get out of your head like that. Yeah. The other thing I find interesting about all of this, uh, the conversion stuff with temperature and all the other factors that go into racing, weight and things like that. It's like, you know, I can I can. I can play out the scenarios of how I can shave time off of my mile time um, based on, let's say, dropping a couple of pounds, running in cooler weather, uh, running in a faster shoe, running on a faster track, whatever those things are, right? I can, I can do all those games. But the reality is your body also has to, has to have the um, economy at that faster pace. And if you haven't trained it, it's just not yeah. going to just show up because some yeah. other things fall in place and and that's also the interesting thing you know it's like for me to be able to run under 450 means i have to be able to run under 72 second 400s there's just the end of the day if i can't do you know i have to have i have to have that as as part of my uh my yeah. training and my preparation otherwise there's just no way to expect that you could just go out and race that way so you mentioned the 3k i just want to close on um so what's next? 449 world record in the mile. 
what's next? Anything beyond that 3K or any big plans? Or are you just going to continue? Obviously, racing is sort of up in the air in terms of uh, coming back to normal. But I'm um, just curious what, what goals you have that you want to share, anything that we should look out for in the future here. Well, so on I entered the um, the race. It's the same track that I ran the world record on, and it's on October 17th, and I entered. Um, Dave Milner is the same race director putting that event on, and he's competing a 3K there. So I'm going to run that on October 17th, and that has 100% of my focus right now. Great. Um, he also may run uh, another outdoor track meet in Nashville in December. Um, you know, that, you know, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. In terms of next year, um, I, I mean, I would love the, at the end of this year, it hasn't been canceled yet. I suspect it will be, but there's the U.S. Club National Cross Country Championships that were slated to be held in San Francisco. Um, yeah. They haven't been canceled, but if they're not canceled, I'll 100% go run in that event. Um, that's the venue where I actually won Club Nationals in 2015, and I love the course and have such good memories of it. And I'm in such good shape. I know I could run just, uh, you know, I could shift my focus towards the uh, the end of the year and run a fast cross-country race. And then next year, the World Championships are going to be in Finland. And I would love to go oh, on stage cool. with the best, you know, 1,500-meter runners in the world and see how I can do. Um, that would be great. That's awesome. Yeah. So so those are those are probably the, the highlights of what have sort of, tweaked my interest and gotten me excited about um racing by the way i have to say one one more thing on this i broke that world record and i had no more races on my calendar and i was so excited and happy about my performance you know just it you know it just takes you to the moon to to accomplish something like that and literally within a week i was depressed because Mm. you know the the glow was kind of fading a little bit and I didn't have anything else to train for. I didn't have anything on my calendar. And I was just like, it was a weird kind of like slippery slope into this. Like, oh, yeah, this sucks. <laughs> I know I, I, that's one of my regrets, right? I think it's just common amongst athletes. It's, you know, some of my best races, you just spend such little time sort of savoring or enjoying in the moment and the process that got you there and, and all that. And it's kind of on to the next thing. Right. And I think right. we've seen a lot of athletes just drop off because um, races are canceled. And we actually had an exercise psychologist on with a group of athletes that, that we coach. And it was great hearing him talk about like, why do you, you know, why do you do this? Like you said, like you love it. You love to run fast and uh, you love to train and, and how you feel in your body. And he talked about a lot of that, like ask yourself, why do you do this? You know, so we can get people to enjoy the process more, the lifestyle, the, how does it make you feel? Or is it just to go, you know, run the, this race, you know, to PR? Is that, is that the only reason? Maybe it is, but I think it's good to think about the other reasons we do this and why, why we love the sport so much, you know? Yeah. I, I'm one of the I'm one of those types of athletes that I just love the entire process around yeah thinking about a goal something that would be cool um, visualizing it you know and then the whole build up the training the preparation and then and then the event um, 
And it, I guess it lends itself to a little bit of a letdown when it's over because there's so much energy <laughs> that, that goes into it. But but the cycle of that, I, I always have to find the next one. There's always got to be, you know, what, what comes next for me um, because it just creates so much good energy for me. Um, and it's a healthy energy, I think, for the most part. Um, right. Right. Well, we're excited to see that 3K or, or cheer you on virtually here. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. Um, it's um, been awesome. Thank thanks yeah. for some of the thank, thanks for some of the training guidance because, uh, like, I'm literally trying to figure out, okay, what do those workouts look like that are going to make me you know, <laughs> best well, position to run well at that distance? Yeah, shoot, shoot, shoot us an email. We'll bounce anything you want. We're always happy to bounce off Jack. I mean, he's at home right now, just chomping at the bit, like for questions training advice he never stops so uh nice. he, he would love to offer his perspective if you'd want to hear it so don't be shy keep us posted and uh we're we're excited to see what comes next i will 100 take you up on that that's awesome thank you so much awesome dan it's great talking with you yeah brian thank you very much uh i enjoyed the conversation as well awesome take care stay safe yeah i've been over here